passage on which our teaching will be based this morning comes from Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 23, all the way to the end of the chapter. Uh, Follow along if you can in your pew Bibles on page 813 where it starts. I'd invite you to read along with us. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? And then he came to the other side, to the country of the Gerasenes, Gedarenes. Two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. This is God's word. It ought to go without saying that you really can't have any certainty about anything in life unless you are in touch with a power that can make that certain. Um, I was reminded of this about a very hilarious scene in one of the Pixar classics, The Incredibles, where the arch-villain has kidnapped little baby Jack-Jack, only to discover that baby Jack-Jack has superpowers himself. Well, in the hilarity that ensues, Mrs. Incredible, Elastigirl, uh, gets thrown up towards the villain's plane by her super-strong husband to rescue the baby. Well, once she catches him, how does she rescue him? Well, she stretches herself into a parachute to gently float her and the baby down to safety. The problem is that Mr. Incredible, in a fit of wrath, has just thrown a car at the villain's jet, making it explode into a huge fireball. The camera cuts to the perspective of baby Jack-Jack, who is looking up at his, uh, at his parachute mother while she says, looking down, don't worry, everything's going to be all, all right. But of course, you can see the incredulity in Jack-Jack's face, right? He's, he's fixated on the giant ball of fire and, and flaming airplane that's coming down at them. And I always laugh at that because even the infant Jack-Jack intuitively knows that you can't say that everything is going to be okay unless you are in possession of the power to make that okay. Look, remember, Jesus was up on a hillside announcing the kingdom of God. That is, that is his whole deal. And when he comes down off the hillside, he comes to actually bring the kingdom and the rule and the reign of God into the day in and day out life of these fishing towns and villages around the Sea of Galilee. So if you're a run-of-the-mill citizen of Palestine, I'm sure you'd be quite curious as to know exactly what this man was about. You feel the struggles of daily existence just like anybody else. And of course, indeed, throngs of people were coming to hear what Jesus had to say. But What was peculiar about him was that he just really wasn't going about it the right way, was he? Jesus didn't come along spouting policy amendments to help accommodate the Roman Empire. 
nor did he come with some sort of elaborate plans to start maybe a massive insurrection of Jewish zealots who would cause so much chaos that eventually the Romans would leave the Jews to be formulated into their own people again. No, Jesus didn't either of those things. I would argue, rather, that Jesus simply shows up and starts talking about himself. And he begins to brandish his own power in such a way that when he says, fear not, everything's going to be all right, you got every reason to believe him. In other words, Jesus' solution to human problems is not policy or tactic, which are things obviously that we so often want from him. Rather, it's simply to offer himself as an antidote to the chaos which infects humanity both from without and from within. Those are my only two points this morning, to see how Jesus deals with the chaos from without and how he deals with the chaos from within. Let's take that first one first. But in order to set up this whole scene that the disciples have found themselves in, I want you to consider for a moment how it is that physical places in your life mean so much more than the places themselves. Imagine a scenario for a moment. There's a young lady who is in her 30s who is walking out and into the grove some 10 years after her graduation. She sits down at a picnic table and suddenly she starts to cry. You see, since that time, she's been married. She's she's had a child. She divorced her husband and is now having to face life as a single mom. So why is she crying there in the grove? It's not because it just happens to be a convenient place to have a nervous breakdown, but because the grove is more than just a lovely bunch of trees on campus to her. No, the grove to this young woman has become a symbol of, a, of an innocent time, a time when life wasn't so complicated. My guess is the grove is significant enough a locale for many of you to have emotions wrapped up in it. But notice, that's sort of the way a, a place has a positive association. It can be negative, too. I always think about Forrest Gump and the famous scene where the heroine sort of happens upon the house that she grew up in, a house full of abuse and, and fear and terror. What does she do? She picks up rocks and starts hurling them at the house, weeping as she does. Why? Well, it's not because the planks of wood that made up the walls of that house she's angry with. It's what that house represents to her. She throws rocks at her anguish. She throws rocks at her regret and all of her shame. All the more profound, is it not, when Forrest comments, sometimes in life, I guess there's just not enough rocks. So if you can wrap your mind around what's happening in those two quick examples, and hopefully you can see the way in which a Jewish person felt whenever they looked out over the sea. You know, for us, an ocean, maybe a great lake, oftentimes is for us a place of placid tranquility, something calm, something lovely. Maybe you've got fond memories as a child of building sandcastles and playing in waves. Holiday at the ocean side sort of feels like the ideal spot for someone to unwind and recharge their batteries. But you have to understand that, like, the Jewish people were not seafaring people at all. Um, I, I picked up a couple of great insights from uh, Tim Mackey and our friends over at the Bible Project on this. By the way, quick aside, I, I've been using as a reference for at least three of the last five sermons in this series uh, very liberally from. Um, Tim Mackey's podcast, Exploring My Strange Bible, uh, one, in case, very liberally. And it's my custom to cite those sources, but someone was kind enough to draw attention to me that I had not done so with Mackey. And I wanted to draw your attention to that for two reasons. 
Uh, the first reason is because I'm still living with my commitment not to have an original thought until I'm 70 years old. I've not wavered from that. I also don't want you thinking that I'm passing off someone else's work as my own by any stretch. But I also want you to know and have access to really good Bible teachers on this exact same series. So, by the way, forgive any uh, false impression I might have given on that score. Anyway, what Mackey says is he makes this point that what the sea had come to mean in these people's collective memories was something quite bad. It was something very sinister, something foreboding to these people. And a quick survey of their history will tell you why. I mean, you think about the creation where God's orderliness comes over what? A dark primordial sea. You've got Israel who comes out of Egypt and literally had to pass through the sea in order to be saved. The psalm writers over and over again talk about the creator God who rules over the raging of the sea, talking about its rough and threatening waves. You've got Jonah, of course, who was sailing in the wrong direction and God brings a great storm that only gets calmed when he, at his request, gets thrown over, overboard. You could also mention Daniel in Revelation, which is <laughs> the sea is the place where monsters come from. So the sea, therefore, came to symbolize for them the dark power of evil. It was the place that threatened to destroy God's good creation, God's people, and God's purposes. You know, in my imagination, it strikes me as sort of what mail carriers probably think about dogs. You can, you can tell them not to be afraid of dogs all you want, but if they chase and bite you after a personal history of them doing so, my guess is, is as a group, you just don't like dogs. My point is I'm trying to get you within in some context of the disciples' terror at being caught in the very thing that they probably knew from the very beginning. That's why you have this intensity in their fear that comes out in the passage quite clear. Look at verse 2. They say, save us, Lord. We are perishing. In other words, there's a ton of emotion attached to the disciples' cries. They're out of their wits. What is Jesus doing? He's sleeping, totally at peace in the midst of the fury. Look, in the Bible, there is no greater symbol for Jewish people of the impotence of human power in the face of nature. There is no greater vision of human weakness and vulnerability and uncontrollability and fury and chaos than the sea. So much so, by the way, in Revelation chapter 21, there's a prediction that in the new heavens and the new earth, there won't be any sea, which is a decided bummer for people who love an ocean vacation. But it doesn't mean that in heaven there won't be great bodies of water. What it means is that there's no chaos there. There's no powerlessness there. Okay, so what does Jesus do? Well, one of the things I find fascinating about all these stories in Matthew is it's just the minimalism with which these miracles are described. I mean, come on. Yeah. He rose, rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. I mean, what? Is that all? <laughs> I mean, if I were writing this story, I think I'd dramatize it a little bit more, right? Then Jesus rolled up his sleeves and he shouted in a mighty voice, Be calm, O foul winds, or something like that. But no, all he does is say a word and boom, it's dead calm. I think what Matthew's trying to say is this was nothing for Jesus to do. And then verse 27, I think Matthew gives us the point of his story. Because the disciples' question is the question Matthew wants for us to ask when you read it. What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? I think Matthew wants for us to answer this question. But I want to submit to you this morning that like the disciples actually should have been able to answer that question had they known their Bibles. Especially the Psalms. 
Let's take, for example, Psalm 69 says this, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I've come into the deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I'm weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Isn't that interesting? You see, the psalmist is translating his anxiety using imagery of a terrifying sea. But who alone can calm the sea? Well, the psalmist says, I'm waiting for my God. Only God can rescue someone from the sea. Try another one. This one's even more explicit in Psalm 89, verse 8 and 9. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Do you hear that? <laughs> Yahweh is the one who is ruling the sea. He alone can still it when it rages. Okay, so you see how the disciples, they should have known the answer to the question. If only Yahweh can calm the sea, this must be Yahweh in the flesh in the boat with us. Now look, I want to, I'm going to build on that in the second point in just a second, but can we pause there for a second and make one, one little brief point of application? It's this. Do you see how Jesus is working with and through the disciples' anxiety? Because at first, their anxiety is wrapped up in their circumstances. And of course, they're not mild circumstances either. They, they honestly believe <coughs> that they are going to die. This is a serious situation. But of course, after Jesus just flexes the pinky finger of his power, they have to grapple with the reality of exactly who they have in the boat with them. That's Jesus' method, by the way. And I think it's descriptive of the way he deals with our anxiety. We start by bringing him our circumstances, don't we? Lord, please fix this. Save me, Lord. But in my experience, it's very rare that he answers those requests, at least in the terms in which I'm thinking about them when I'm in the midst of my own suffering. Instead, Jesus shows us himself. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, look, you can fret all you want over what's happening to you right now, but you have something far more serious to contend with, and that is me. And so do the math. <laughs> if you know me, then there is no possible way that you could be any safer than you are right now, regardless of your circumstances. But if you don't, there is no amount of wish granting that's going to make your situation any better. In other words, Jesus knows exactly how to deal with the chaos that often comes from without, from the circumstances that, that plague our lives. But that brings a second point, doesn't it? What about the chaos that comes from within, though, right? Not something that sort of comes from the outside, but from our own hearts. You know, I said a moment ago that the disciples should have known the answer to the question, what kind of man is this? But in Matthew, in the manner of his storytelling, he doesn't leave you with an answer. Instead, he answers by telling another story about some demon-possessed men who end up providing, as it turns out, a very explicit answer to the disciples' question. First, a little bit of background. The lake that Jesus is on uh, was the Sea of Galilee, we know. The Gadarenes, you might see him spelled the Gerasenes and other places, are due east of where he's been ministering at this time. And the people who visited that place will tell you that the whole lake sits really encircled uh, by a bunch of mountain ranges. 
And on the eastern side of that landing, there are these caves along the seashore there that had uh, caves in the rocks where they would normally be used as burial spots. This is the place where Jesus is confronted by the town madmen. So I think Matthew has put this in this story to answer the disciples' question in verse 29. Because what do the demons say? The demons inside this man say, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? (laughs) Do you hear the confession? Even the demons get who Jesus is. They acknowledge that Jesus is who he is. In other words, they say, they realize this is the Son of God. Which if you think about it for a second, will actually put it to some interesting context, this whole storm squall situation as well. Here's the deal, because if Jesus was the Son of God himself, it means that the winds were only blowing because he was telling them to do so. Everything went dead calm when he told them to because those waves, they knew the voice of their master. So what's the answer to the demon's question? Has Jesus come to torment them? I would argue that yes, indeed he has. Remember, a pig was a very unclean, disgusting animal to a Jewish person. So to be cast out of the men and into these pigs, that was, that was an open mockery of these people. And of course, if that wasn't enough, the pigs immediately commit mass suicide, running off the cliff and drowning in the sea. You know, what do we make of this? I think there's at least a few things that we can say in response, not the least of which is the reason why the the villagers wanted Jesus to leave their time. We, we, We need our product back, thank you. But for us, I find people most often wanting to ask questions about all of the demons question, Right? Um, And I think there's a temptation when we wrestle through this to over-spiritualize this particular story. People try to make the main point of this story about how demons and the presence and reality of them should be adopted into the way a Christian lives. And hear me, I do think that there is something about that, something to that. And I'm leaning really heavily on C.S. Lewis, a little line from his uh, intro to the Screwtape Letters. Uh, his classic uh, of uh, the demon conversations, where he says, look, it's very possible both to over-believe in demons, but it's also possible to under-believe in them. Here's what he says. He says, there's two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. The demons themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail both a materialist and a magician with the same delight. (laughs) Okay, notice what he's saying. He says, look, there's one group who doesn't acknowledge the existence of demonic beings at all, which of course is an inadvertent way of assisting your enemy because you're avoiding his influence. But like Brian was talking about a few weeks ago in his sermon on Jesus' temptation, the Bible's view is that pain and dysfunction and destruction and murder of human beings in the Bible doesn't just happen. That rather it has a malevolent force behind it, a malevolent personality behind it. Confusion, anxiety, fear, hatred, these are functions of suggestions and influences that have as their hope the dismantling of your humanity at its heart. Satan's reason for being is to ruin and disfigure the divine likeness in all of its glorious manifestations, not the least of which is in humans. So yes, there's a sense in which we acknowledge the presence and work of those demons. But secondly, there's another group who starts to see demons behind every single bush. 
You know, every, everything from sort of traffic jams that kept you from an appointment uh, or a child's temper tantrum, these things end up getting ascribed to unseen forces, uh, demonic forces. But again, I think the point of this passage is to show that Satan actually is very much on God's leash. <laughs> he is under his absolute control. And so don't make the mistake of thinking that the locus of this passage is on the demons. It is not. The focus of the passage is on the Lord Jesus, who is restoring the true humanity which this demonic possession seeks to destroy and to distort. So how is he doing that? Well, simply by unveiling his absolute authority over the powers of evil. That, I would submit, is the point of the story. Jesus' whole reason for being here is to stamp out evil. He has come there to crush the rebellion that's been mounted against his creation and bring peace that he intends for his people. Look, this is exactly why the Apostle Paul will say later on in Colossians 2, verse 15, that Jesus, quote, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Do you notice the verbs in that, in that sentence? They're all past tense. Jesus did this thing. He disarmed. This is something that happened then. Invariably, though, when I preach topics like this, I'll get people who are, quite honestly, very spiritually attuned who want to join Jesus in this assault. I mean, shouldn't Jesus or shouldn't we Christians be in the business of binding Satan, forbidding the minions from exercising control over human affairs? Again, this simply strikes me as out of balance. I mean, I, I don't believe these stories are containing instruction for God's people to take up something that only Jesus, first of all, can do, but secondly, <laughs> has definitively already done on the cross. So let's not spend our time waking up in the middle of the night wondering if we saw the glowing eyes of demons across the room uh, of our children's beds. No, I think instead what we want to learn is that we are living in the world that has been conquered by Jesus. Emphasis on the verb there. Think of Paul's expansion on Jesus' demon ministry in Ephesians chapter 6. Do you remember at the end of, of the book of Ephesians? Paul affirms that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against what? Against powers and principalities. Interesting. So Paul says, yes, the battle's still going on. He affirms their existence. <laughs> but what does he say to do with them? Well, he finds out that Paul says that Jesus has granted us armor. Remember the full armor of God when you were a kid in um, Sunday school? When I was growing up, man, people used to make so much of these passages, trying to figure out exactly where each piece fit in. And I think I heard some wild-eyed speculation from passages like this. Even, even the Puritan William Gurnall wrote three volumes over the, uh, spiritual, um, the spiritual armor that people have. My thing is, is I'm just not convinced that this is the way Paul intended that spiritual armor to be taken. No, Paul says, look, when it comes to the armor, I want you actually to, here's his quote, to take those things up. Interesting. What that means is, is these are things that you already own in Christ. Each one of those pieces of armor corresponds to some aspect of a Christian's new identity in Christ. You remember him? You know, there's this whole belt of truth which is the integrity that comes from not having to pretend anymore, authentic living. There's the breastplate of righteousness. That's the realization that my righteousness uh, is, uh, is, that I have is, from, is on loan from Christ. 
We have shoes of readiness, which describes the peace that comes from finding out finally what my life is about and wanting to share it from, with others. Remember, there's that whole shield of faith, which deals with our focus, what we look to to draw life from that you know, is being used in order to ward off fiery darts of temptation. Finally get the helmet of salvation, the sword of, the sword of the Spirit. That's the Word of God, my new personal history that I already have in Christ. But here's my point. Every one of those things that are used to fight these principalities and powers are already there as a gospel grant to the Christian. And the goal is, is for her to be equipped to be who she already is. This is how Paul argues throughout the book of Ephesians. Go read it this afternoon. Be who you are in Christ. He has done this. Now go live up into it. Don't you see that that's the main way in which people who have countered the powerful Jesus talk. <laughs> they don't, uh, we don't assist Jesus. <laughs> we don't meet Jesus halfway. We come to something that is already accomplished. Jesus has defeated the devil. You and I are simply cleaning up after his victory. And my premise this morning is, and wrapping this up, is that this is the only way to battle the chaos from within. Or at least the only effective way to battle the chaos that comes from within. Now forgive me, this is, this is a pastor's story, but maybe you can relate with what this guy's saying. It's a little too relatable for me, I'll, I'll confess to you. But I found a great uh, sort of section from um, the great British Chinese missionary named Hudson Taylor. You ever heard of Hudson Taylor? You need to know that name. He's a big one. <clears throat> Hudson Taylor, it turns out, found himself in the midst of a huge depression in his ministry. And he was writing in his journal, and those things have been published now. And this is what he wrote. Listen to this. Anybody ever relate to this? He says, then came my question. Is there no rescue? Must it be thus to the end, constant conflict, and too often defeat? How can I stand up and preach with sincerity that to those who received Jesus, to them he gave power to become sons of God when it was not so in my own experience? Instead of growing stronger, I seem to be getting weaker and to have less power against sin. And no wonder, for faith and even hope were getting quite low. I hated myself. I hated my sin, and yet I gained no strength against it. I felt I was a child of God. His spirit in my heart would cry in spite of it all, Abba, Father. But to rise to the privileges as a child, I was utterly powerless. A couple pages later, he starts to come out of it. He says, when my agony of soul was at its height, a sentence in a letter from a friend was used to remove the scales from my eyes. And the Spirit of God revealed to me a truth of our oneness with Jesus as I had never known it before. This is the quote from the letter. But how to get strengthened? Not by striving after faith, but rather by resting on the faithful one. He says, as I read it, I saw it all. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. That's a quote from 2 Timothy 2.13. He says, I looked to Jesus and saw, and when I saw, oh, how joy flowed, that he had said, I will never leave you. Do you see what happened? Because there's a part of me that kind of wants to leave you with the saying, saying, let's all say that we're going to spend this week figuring out just what Hudson Taylor meant. Because my guess is he was saying, there is, not, there is no relief there is no peace, nor is there power 
to face the kinds of things that are going to come from outside and inside when we try to sort of build up to it. It's exactly what Susie was talking about. When we try to sort of gather up our merit, when we try to sort of meet Jesus halfway. Well, you know, God helps those who help themselves. You know that's not in the Bible. Stop quoting that as a Bible. It's not there. And it's not the gospel either. It's just the opposite. The point is, is whether the chaos in your life is coming from within and the torment of the devil's minions, or whether you are under the crushing circumstances of life, this hero is powerful. And when he says, don't be afraid, you can trust him. So what if the point of the sermon was like, let's, let's all go find Jesus, because that's where the power is. Let's pray. Then we ask by prayer, whatever this means, and Father, we get confused even to what the simplest of spiritual applications mean. We ask, Father, that you would come and meet us. That in our singing and in our prayer, we would find in you to be the all-powerful one. It reads a little bit like a comic book story to see that you had stilled the seas the way in which you had. But once that reality takes over, we understand that you are saying something very profound about yourself. And we still have access to that in the way in which we're praying right now. So, Father, would you meet the needs of my friends? Would you meet my need? Meet us, Father, in that place in the way in which only your Son can. So, Lord Jesus, come. Let us find you, perhaps even in this last song. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.